Well, if you're in Luke 1, you'll want to remain there this morning. Most of, much of what we'll look at will be in that chapter. We're taking a break from our normal exposition of the Paul's epistle to the Philippians, and I want to consider this morning, take most of our time really to consider what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, you may wonder why I would want to preach that kind of message, and um, there are a number of reasons for that, really. I I preached a couple of years ago a, a sermon this time of year entitled Mary's Wonder out of Luke 1 and the passage that Alan read this morning. And even then, I thought I should preach probably a follow-up to that message. You know that it is clear in Scripture that there is a responsibility on the part of shepherds to protect the flock from uh, error. And in recent months and weeks, I've actually had a number of interactions with some Catholic friends and with Catholic doctrine and some of the confusion around the things that the Catholic Church teaches. And I, wanna, I, want, I want these things to be clear in your head for a number of reasons. I want you to be discerning. There are a number of you who have come out of the Catholic Church, and it's important that you understand uh, what the Catholic Church teaches and how that is distinct um, as we talk about the true gospel And just as I want to protect you, I also want to edify you as as the church so that you might be a more informed evangelist as you think about giving a reason for the hope that lies within you to Catholics that you know. Uh, The issue, frankly, is no trifle, this matter of Mary. It's, It's no small thing. The issue, frankly, couldn't be more serious What you think about Mary is a matter of life and death. And to be silent on this issue is simply out of the question. You know from what we've been studying in Philippians that this matter of who or what you are hoping in for salvation is the most critical and fundamental question there is. To add Moses to Jesus was to be out of the kingdom of heaven. To add Mary to Jesus is to be out of the kingdom of heaven. Paul could not rest in his righteousness before God, and neither can one hope to find hope in Mary's righteousness before God. It is the merit of Christ and Christ alone that will deliver in the dying day. And I want to be crystal clear this morning as we dive into these things. Nothing being preached this morning is being preached so that you might be a critic of Catholicism. Nothing being preached is being preached so that you might hold in judgment Catholics. What is being preached is being preached because we love Catholics because we have friends who are Catholics, because Catholics are the mission field. Are we clear, crystal clear? It's critical that you understand this. The enemy is false doctrine, not Catholics. The enemy is false religion that proclaims a different gospel. And you're going to need general comprehension of these things, A, so that you understand how to testify the truth 
to our friends who are Catholics to, to preach the truth of Christ and the true gospel. And secondarily, you, you need to understand these things so that your grasp of the gospel becomes sharpened. Now, the mother of Jesus has always been the subject of lies. In the first century, in the early days, it was promulgated the lie that she was a fornicator. She was not. And today, it is a lie that she is, well, frankly, nearly considered divine. I really believe it to be true that Mary would weep. She would be grieved to know what the Catholic Church has done with her and with her reputation. And Mary for Catholics has only grown in importance and in significance in the last 100, 150 years. And those myths continue to grow bigger and bigger and all of us frankly need to be prepared with biblical answers to these things so that we can speak intelligently about them and seek their salvation. This is a big topic, it's a massive topic. If I were to take uh, sufficient time, really, it would take us three or four Sundays really to expose the breadth of Marian theology. I'm only able to touch on the topic and I trust that this will be helpful to you. I'm gonna give you seven important doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church teaches today about Mary and then I wanna give you just a brief response to each and a lot of that, as I said, will come out of Luke chapter one and two. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the true gospel. It is the gospel by which we are saved. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And that gospel is a gospel of Christ and him crucified, risen again. And it is a gospel of righteousness by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And we pray that you would clarify these things and anchor them in our hearts as we consider it this morning. And Lord, that you would prepare us and even Bring us to consider prayerfully who we might be able to teach these things to and, and help, Lord, that we might see many who hold to these who are captivated by false doctrine, led out and to the true gospel by your grace. Help us to that end, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. What do Catholics believe regarding Mary? What does the church teach? Well, first of all this, that she is the mother of God. The Council of Ephesus in AD 431, this is obviously going way back, says this, quote, if anyone does not confess that Emmanuel in truth is God, that is Jesus, and that on account, on this account, the Holy Virgin is the mother of God, since according to the flesh she brought forth the word of God made flesh, let them be anathema. So this is a, this is a, a doctrine that you must hold to if you are a Catholic, that Jesus, a faithful Catholic, that Jesus is the mother of God. And the logic, of course, is simple enough. Jesus is truly God. Mother Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is truly God, and therefore Mary then becomes the mother of God. We're told, of course, in the scriptures that Mary is the mother of Jesus many times, in the Gospels in particular, Isaiah 7.14 speaks of a virgin who would be with child, referring to the Virgin Mary. In Galatians 4.4, Paul speaks about the fact that when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, 
born of a woman, and that woman being Mary. And so it's beyond dispute, frankly, that Jesus is divine and that Mary was chosen by God to bear the divine son. Now there's general agreement between Protestants and Catholics, frankly, on this issue of the mother of God, but it does depend what you mean by mother of God. If by that you simply mean that Jesus is divine, fully God and fully man, and that the Virgin Mary, in fact, was the chosen instrument or vessel to carry Christ and to deliver the Christ child into the world, well, then we have no issue. However, Scripture does not use the title Mother of God of Mary, let alone anybody else. It's interesting, Jesus never refers to Mary as his mother. Now, Jesus had a mother, and Jesus knew he had a mother. Jesus never referred to Mary, however, as mother in Scripture. And we know that he was given in the incarnation, right, so that he might identify with us as being fully man. And in that sense, having a mother is even further identification with you and with me. We all had mothers. But it's only as a man that Jesus can have a mother. Does that make sense? God cannot have a mother. God is eternal. And the distinctions here, and we need to remember them because they are profound, they're, they're infinitely profound. Christ is eternal, having no beginning or end. Mary, on the other hand, is temporal in the sense that she was born in time and did, in fact, have a beginning. Christ is the creator. Christ created his mother, which is a weird thought, but it's true. Christ is divine. Mary is human. Now, it's denied by the Catholic Church that Mary is worshipped. But it isn't difficult to see that at the end of the day, Mary is in fact worshipped, and we're going to come back to this later, at, at the level of, of deity. And this title, Mother of God, tends to confuse those things because we understand mothers to be before children, and we understand mothers to be the, the source of the the created offspring of their womb in the sense that they carry and nurture and give birth to this, this child. And all of that, of course, again, is true of Christ in that she bore him. But Jesus preceded his mother, and we need to keep that clear in our head. The theological conclusion of the Council of Ephesus in 431 that Mary was or is the mother of God was not really aimed to exalt Mary. They were fighting off the Nestorians who were teaching that Jesus was not divine. And so it really was to, to defend against those who were attacking the deity of Christ that that church council came up with the terminology of mother of God. So Jesus is the mother of God. That's, that's the first doctrine. The second is this, that 
I'm sorry, that Mary is the mother of God. The second is this, that Mary was born by or conceived by immaculate conception and that she remains throughout her life and even into all eternity sinlessly perfect. Now this doctrine of the immaculate conception is not to be confused with the virgin conception of Christ. This doctrine deals with the way Mary was conceived by her mother, not Jesus. It was officially proclaimed the dogma of the Catholic Church in 1854 by Pius IX, but the doctrine goes back many hundred years before that, and it teaches essentially this, that at the moment of Mary's own conception in the womb of her mother, Mary was divinely protected from inherited original sin so that she was born without a human sin nature. In other words, unlike the rest of us, Mary was not tainted by original sin. Here, in the wor- here are the words of Pope Pius IX himself, quote, we declare, pronounce, and define the doctrine that maintains that the most blessed Virgin Mary in the first instance of her conception by a unique grace and privilege from the omnipotent God was preserved free from all stain of original sin. He goes on to say it's a doctrine revealed by God and therefore must be firmly and constantly held by all the faithful. Well, of course, that is not a doctrine revealed by scripture at all. And this is part of the challenge in dealing with Catholic doctrine because they have, they have the, as a basis of authority two different sources. One is the Bible and the other is church tradition. Well, inevitably when you add another source of authority to the scriptures, the other source inevitably trumps the Bible. And so when Pius here is referring to the fact that, that that this thing is taught by God, he's, he's referring to, to himself and other sources of the, of, of, the, of the Catholic leadership who would teach this kind of thing. The church teaches that Mary was born with a perfect, sinless human nature, which in turn then she passed on to her son. You heard that, which she then in turn passed on to her son. The Council of Trent said this, 1547, so we're going back a ways here, quote, Mary was free from all actual sins. In fact, the 1994 Catechism Number 2030 says this, quote, the church finds its example of holiness and recognizes its model and source in the all-holy Virgin Mary. How, How would we respond to this? Well, as to her immaculate conception, there's no mention of Mary's birth in Scripture at all, All of it is based on imagination and superstition and speculative conjecture. It is simply taught out of the tradition of the church. The Bible clearly teaches that all are in Adam. The church teaches that Mary is impeccable, that is that she is without sin. 
And if you've been around the Bible and thumbed your way through it in even a casual way, you're well aware that the Bible offers verse after verse of sweeping indictments of the whole of humanity and every man, woman, and child that we are guilty before God. Isaiah spoke the word of God saying that all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned aside to his own way. The scripture teaches there is none righteous, no, not one, and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And frankly, beloved, Mary had no trouble with this teaching. Over in Luke in chapter 2 in verse, verses 21 to 24, you want to make note of this, you want to look at this later, but you'll see that Verse 22 says that when the days of their, for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to the temple, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That reference to the days of purification looks back at Leviticus in chapter 12. And that was the whole offering that was made for a woman's uncleanness after giving birth. Mary had no trouble making that offering for her own purification. Beyond that, she says in chapter 1 and verse 47, you'll note, she says, well, look at 46, and Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my, what? Savior. Now, only sinners need saviors. Mary understood this. Mary understood the truth of 1 John 1.8, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The truth was in Mary, and Mary knew very well that she needed a redeemer. And Mary is a godly woman. Mary is a woman who is a great example of faith and humility. She was undoubtedly a woman of very noble character, but beloved, anchor this in your own heart and mind that there is only one sinless one. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you really think, consider with me for a moment, do you really think Mary could be sinless without the Bible explicitly teaching that? Consider how often the Bible and to what lengths the Bible goes to preserve the understanding that Jesus was utterly without sin that he was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Christ is upheld as the only sinless one in all of human history. There is no such statement for Mary. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, and Mary died. And some in the Catholic Church, of course, teach that Mary did not die, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. So what do we have so far? Well, first, that Mary is considered the mother of God. Secondly, that, that Mary is untainted by sin, either by original sin or any practice of sin whatsoever. The third doctrine is called Mary's fiat. When we're talking about Mary's fiat, we're, we're not talking about the car she drove, okay? This, this concept, this word fiat, comes from the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation, 
of the Greek and Hebrew Bible. And they're translating Luke 1.38, where we have Mary's response to the angel. She says this, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Now that may it be, might be translated in your text, let it be, either are okay, But this fiat in Latin is an imperative which should be translated rightfully, let it be. We'll get to that issue in a moment, but God spoke the universe into existence by fiat, theologians would say. And that is, that, and the word is used there in Genesis 1 and 2. The, the, the idea is that When God said, let there be light, what happened? There was light. So when the the teaching here is that when the angel announced God's plan of redemption and Mary's part in bearing the Christ child, here's the point. Mary directed the Lord by saying, let it be. It's important in Catholic theology, as we shall see in a moment, because it sets Mary up as on this kind of even plane, if, if not maybe even above in some ways, as a co-contributor to the salvation of the church. You see what's being said here. God wanted Mary to bear this child and and, and bring him into the world so that he might bring salvation, but God would never violate Mary's will in that thing. God would never insist that this be the case. God came to Mary essentially asking her for permission to give the Christ child through her womb, and Mary in response said, let it be. In the end, by fiat, if you will, Mary calls the shots and directs Yahweh to do what's in his heart, thus bringing good news to the world. In other words, without Mary's directive, without her fiat, there never would have been a virgin birth or a savior or any redemption for mankind. Now, what do we say in response to this? Well, first is this, it's... it's, uh, this fiat is, is not really what the Greek says. The Greek mood for the verb is optative, not imperative. You don't need to remember that, but it's not a commandment. It's simply expressing a desire or a wish, which is why the better translation is, may it be to me as you have said. Mary responds to the will of God in this and says, yes. If that's your will, that's what I want. In other words, Mary, by her own words, is the slave of the Lord. It's not the other way around. In verse 38 again, notice she says, behold, she identifies herself as the bond slave, literally just the slave of the Lord. I'm your slave. What is your will? I'll do it. You see the same thing in her Magnificat over in verse 48. For he, 
God my Savior, has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. You see, Mary is the handmaiden of the Lord. The Lord is not her handmaiden. Mary is not commanding or directing God in any of this. She's not, as one of the popes put it, his, God's influencer. Mary is submissive, not sovereign. And she's simply demonstrating a godly humility and a willingness to obey God in this, despite the difficulties that this will undoubtedly bring to, to her. Let's move on now to the fourth doctrine, and that is Mary's perpetual virginity. Mary, the church teaches, and this is an older doctrine, it stretches back at least to the fourth century, it became the official teaching of the church in 649 AD under Pope Martin I. This doctrine officially teaches that Mary was a virgin before the birth of Christ, during the birth of Christ, and after the birth of Christ and into eternity. In Catholic parlance, Mary is ever virgin. And the defense for this, at least in part, comes from Ezekiel in chapter 44 and verse 2. Here's what Ezekiel 44, 2 says. Then the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut and it shall not be opened and no one shall enter by it, therefore it shall be shut. Now that, if you know about Ezekiel, is in the section of Ezekiel that teaches about the millennial temple. And not only is this a, a, a tortured interpretation of the text, but it has nothing to do, frankly, with human sexuality whatsoever, let alone Mary's perpetual virginity. According to Catholic doctrine, Mary's perpetual virginity was, quote, her singular sacrifice of devotion to God. Mary gave up a sex life in devotion to God. Now, that Mary was a virgin until after the birth of Christ, well, that is a biblical teaching, to be sure. And it's a fundamental teaching and a necessary teaching. You can't go get to Christ and, and, and deny that, that Jesus was born of a virgin. That she remained a virgin though married to Joseph, is frankly in direct contradiction to the teaching of the Bible. And that she retained her virginity during the birth of Christ is just plain odd. This doctrine teaches that Christ miraculously emerged from the womb of Mary, the unimpaired womb of the Virgin Mary. It was sort of a, a divine C-section performed without hands, if you will, where, where Jesus was born without the opening of Mary's womb and without any pain or injury to her holy body. Now, of course, we have no argument with the virgin birth. I, I just stated that. This is the undeniable teaching of Scripture that Jesus was 
supernaturally conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary without any sexual union whatsoever. Mary had never been with another man. That's clear if you look down in verses 34 and 35 of our text in Luke 1. Mary said to the angel, how will this be? How am I going to bear this child? How will I have a baby since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. It was prophesied, as I said earlier in Luke, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 7, 14, that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What about this teaching of perpetual virginity? Well, we know from a number of texts, I'll give them to you, Matthew 12, 46 to 50, Mark 6, 1 to 6, John 7, 2 to 5, and Galatians 1, 19, we know that Jesus had brothers and sisters. The scriptures teach that very clearly. Catholics teach that, that the word for brother there can be translated close relative. Some believe it to be Jesus. They, they were just Jesus' cousins. The Catholic Church has to do something with that in order to keep Mary a perpetual virgin. But the word is just the simple word for brother. There is a word for cousin. It is not used. Then you could think about Matthew 1.18. The birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Not only does that teach the virgin conception of Christ, but also by way of implication, what is implied by before they came together? That sometime later, as is the norm in marriage, by God's good design, they in fact came together. Frankly, beloved, listen, this, this puts the Catholics on the horns of a dilemma because if Mary withheld herself sexually from Joseph all of those years, she lived in direct violation of 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5, which says your body is not your own. It belongs to your husband. Quit denying one another. Which would make Mary a sinner. This doctrine also undermines the goodness of God's gift of the sexual relationship in marriage, and it spawned all kinds of false teaching and, and terrible practice, frankly, within the church. All the doctrines of, of the celibacy of the priests and the nuns, uh, the idea that, that sex somehow, that the sexual union in marriage is somehow tainted. The church has taught in, in certain times throughout its history that sex is impure and that it is only to be used for procreation, never for pleasure. Those things are errors. And the bizarre concept that somehow she retained her, quote, virginal integrity and delivered Jesus by some other miraculous means other than the normal means of delivery, frankly, is just pure mysticism. And it doesn't fit with the fact that she offered sacrifices for her impurity. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches that Mary somehow was, had a painless uh, experience in giving birth to the Son of God. Doctrine number five, the bodily assumption of Mary. The church teaches 
that Mary was taken up, that's the assumption, she was assumed to heaven bodily at her death. Mary is in heaven, but her body is not. She is awaiting, like the rest of the redeemed, that day when Christ returns and in the resurrection we will be raised. The teaching goes like this. Because her unique calling, of her unique calling as the mother of God, because Mary was preserved from original sin, because she never sinned in practice, because she led a sinless life, at the end, her reward was that she was taken into heaven, both body and soul. So in other words, she's the first believer to experience the full fruit and the fullness of redemption. Here's Pope Pius the. 12th in 1950. This doctrine came late. Quote, the immaculate mother of God, Mary, ever virgin, after the completion of her life on earth, was assumed body and soul to the glory of heaven, end quote. Later on, in, in the, in, he, he teaches again, Mary, quote, was resplendent in glory in body and soul. She reigns in heaven with her son. Again, if you go to the Catholic Catechism number 966, you can find these online. It says this, in your dormition, that was a word that was new to me. Uh, we get the word dorm room. The idea is uh, in, in your sleep, right? That, that's a, a euphemism for a Christian's death is sleep. The idea is that Mary died painlessly and at peace and that she was joined to the source of life. You conceive the living God and by your prayers, get this, this is building. This whole thing is building. You conceive the living God and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. A response would be that there is no biblical support for this whatsoever. This is simply the, the logical outworking of all the other doctrines we've considered so far. The outworking of, of the, the idea that she was sinless. And if the wages of sin are death, then you can't have Mary dying like everyone else. And in fact, this was really unclear to me as I, I tried to find answers to the questions, did Mary die or not? The language that is used most of the time in Catholic doctrine, in Catholic writings, simply continues to refer to the end of her life. Nobody will really nail it down and say Mary died. But the church also does not officially teach that she didn't die. It's just kind of left hanging. Anyway, have mercy on me as I try to search these things out. You've got a lot of centuries and a lot of people saying a lot of different things about a lot of stuff. Maybe you can help me in this. But that kind of phraseology of after the completion of her life on earth is very consistent throughout a lot of Catholic writings. But there is no scriptural reason to think that Mary uh, avoided death. Her body will rise again in the resurrection like the rest of the redeemed. Let's get down to number six. Number six, Mary is taught to be the mediatrix. Spell media and then tricks. Remember that breakfast cereal you had as a kid? Mediatrix. 
and a co-redemptress of, uh, of the church. She is the mediatrix and co-redemptrix of the church. And this is where it all comes to a head. You follow all these previous doctrines down to their logical conclusion, and this is what it comes to, and this is tragic. The doctrine teaches that after being assumed into heaven and being elevated above all angels and all saints, that Mary reigns with Christ. She is regarded as a co-mediator and a co-redeemer with Jesus. She is considered to be, and I quote, the very channel of all grace. And the idea is that first, Mary gave Christ in birth the source. He is the source of all graces. She is the channel of the grace that he supplies to the world. And so secondly, Catholics believe that no grace is conferred on man without her intercessory cooperation. So if you want grace, you go to Mary, who will pray for you. If you want salvation, you go to Mary. If you want strength to strive against sin, you go to Mary. If you want forgiveness for your sins, you go to Mary. And she will appeal to her son on your behalf. Because, as the logic goes, what son could ever deny his mother? And you see, in Catholic theology, God the Father and God the Son are viewed as, as kind of strict and stern, and frankly, they really can't be approached except through the mediation of Mary and the mediation of the priesthood, which is why you've got to go to confession. In their own words, here's Pope Leo Thirteenth. This is from 1891, quote, no one can go to the Father except through the Son. And similarly, no one can come to the Son except through Mary. End quote. 1892, quote, It is a great thing that any saint has enough grace to save many others. Now that's got a load of problems in itself, right? But when a saint, capital saint, has grace sufficient for the salvation of all the men of the world, this is the greatest thing of all, and this is the case with Christ and the Blessed Virgin. 1896, quote, well, I should just say it this way, uh, Pope Leo bestows upon Mary the title of mediatrix or mediatrix. Pope Benedict, this is 1918, a little closer to home, quote, it may be justly said that she, Mary, together with Christ, has redeemed the human race. At Vatican II, Vatican is an assembly of 
the Catholic hierarchy to gather together and, and to make and settle doctrinal decisions and, and disputes. There was a Vatican I, which happened in 1868 to 1870. There was a Vatican II in 1962 to 65. Vatican II, so this is the, the ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, gathered together, decided this, quote, this is just 1960, early 60s. Mary was used by God, quote, not merely in a passive way, but as cooperating in the work of human salvation through her faith and obedience, end quote. Another conclusion of Vatican II, Mary, quote, was united with Christ in suffering as he died on the cross. Get this. In an utterly singular way, she cooperated by her obedience, faith, and hope and burning charity in the Savior's work of restoring supernatural life to souls. Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside this saving role, but by her manifold acts of intercession, continues to win for us gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked by the church under the titles of advocate, helper, benefactor, and mediator. And so at Vatican II, they determined then that Mary was now officially the mother of the church, and it is together, mother and son, that they bring about our salvation. Brothers and sisters, this is nothing short of heretical, and it is utterly blasphemous. It is as low, frankly, as theology can go to deny the glory and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is no small matter. And again, I tell you, if Mary were aware, Mary would be weeping. The Bible teaches that to deny the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work is to deny the atonement altogether. Salvation, the Bible teaches, is of the Lord. Not the Lord and his mother. Not the Lord and Moses. Not the Lord and any other. 1 Timothy 2.15, you have it memorized, for there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Acts 4.12 and there is salvation under no other name. For there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I, singularly, am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Beloved, all glory is Christ's. He will not share it with another. And as much as Mary should, in fact, be honored and, and esteemed highly, and she should be, 
we cannot in any way, shape, or form compromise even that much, not that much, on the issue that salvation is through faith in Christ and his satisfactory work alone. Salvation is a gift of God through faith in Christ alone. He alone is our redeemer and there is no scriptural warrant whatsoever for human working in cooperation with Christ at all. To hope in Mary at all. To look to Mary in your dying moment. To look to her merits. To trust in her righteousness. To, to depend upon her for her intercession before Christ. I tell you, no. That is damning, beloved. That is serious business. And this is why I say you cannot put Protestant churches together with Catholic doctrine. Someone has asked the question, can you be a Catholic and go to heaven? Well, yes. You just won't be a very good Catholic. You can't hold to Catholic doctrine and get to heaven. And there are many trapped in that superstitious system who are working. This is just one piece of Catholic doctrine that we're talking about here. The weightier matters really are subject for another sermon or, or eight or ten of them perhaps, but just in Marian theology alone, we find enough to be in trouble if you are really depending upon Mary in the way the Catholic Church says you must depend upon Mary as the co-mediatrix and co-redemptress with her son. That's blasphemy. We must move on. That finally leads to the veneration of Mary. The veneration of Mary, who is considered the queen of heaven. You can track the progression. Because Mary bore God's divine son, she is then the mother of God and therefore the mother of the church, who was immaculately conceived, free from all corruption in Adam, who lived then a sinless, perfect life, who then has the capacity from heaven to move the sovereign God. She has maintained her purity by remaining perpetually virgin. She is full of grace and assumed into heaven to reign alongside her divine son. She is then able to mediate between God and man along with Jesus. And no one can come to her ultimately or come to God ultimately apart from the co-working of Mary with her divine son and as such she is elevated to what some have called the fourth member of the Trinity. The, the church does not teach that. The Catholic church does not teach that. But that is really when you consider the way Mary is viewed, the only conclusion you can ultimately come to is that she is nigh divine. To venerate means to regard with reverential respect and with admiring deference. They say that Mary is worthy of hyperdulia, 
The idea is hyper-service or hyper-devotion, hyper-loyalty. Here's from the Catholic Catechism number 971, quote, the church rightly honors the Blessed Virgin with special devotion. From the most ancient times, the Blessed Virgin has been honored with the title Mother of God. To those whose protection, the faithful fly. And in all their dangers and needs, this is very special devotion. And it differs essentially, says the church, from the adoration which is given to the incarnate word and equally to the Father and the Spirit. So you need to understand this. The church officially denies worshiping Mary. They're very careful to distinguish the difference between veneration and worship. And yet in practice, it is Mary who dominates the scene. The question really confronts us is this, when does reverence become idolatry? And when you consider the place to which they've exalted Mary, that she is called the queen of heaven, they teach that Mary is the new Eve, just as Jesus is the new Adam. Mary is the new Eve. And the two of them together then, it is on their coattails that that we get to heaven. This idea that she shares intimately in the redemptive work of Christ by suffering with him as his mother, she suffered at the cross, giving up freely her son to the Lord's will. She suffered there with Jesus, willingly offering him up to the eternal father. Pius VII, 1953, his encyclical, he sent this. It says, Mary's sublime dignity as the queen of heaven and earth makes her supremely powerful in her maternal intercession for her children on earth. Mary watches over and protects the human race through her intercession. You want to think about it this way. She is the high priestess to go along with our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when you think about that, and when you think about the fact that the prayers of the faithful by the direction of the Catholic Church are directed not to God and not to Jesus in the first place, but unto Mary, which is, of course, against the express will of God in Scripture, that in the normal context of Catholic worship, they pray to Mary, that that they offer prayers to Mary while kneeling, That, that oftentimes that kneeling is done before an actual image of the Blessed Virgin, It would be an obvious conclusion that the vast majority of prayers that are offered through Catholic lips are directed not to God in the name of Jesus, as the Bible teaches, but unto Mary. And beyond that, when you think about the fact that they've devoted multiple official feasts and celebrations unto Mary, and I tried, I worked hard at trying to figure out how many official feast days there are, and it ranged from four to 18, I went to one website that that claims that they keep track of all the feasts and celebrations, and there were in the hundreds going on around the world. 
you think about the fact that Jesus gets Easter and Christmas. He gets two. What does that say? It really can't say anything other than the fact that Mary ascends in Catholic practice, though it's not their official doctrine, to some level of, of deity. You travel in South America, what will you find? You will find shrine after shrine after shrine after shrine of the Blessed Virgin with her child, the Madonna. It's really intriguing, and we don't have time to talk about it, but there, there have been throughout the history of the world these these cults, really, that, that have upheld the idea of the Madonna and child, the, the, the woman, the mother, and the baby. And it's strange that, that this kind of thing is upheld in the Catholic Church with, with Scripture supposedly undergirding it, which, again, it does not. We just don't, and, and again, Mary should be appreciated. We just shouldn't elevate her to the level that the Catholic Church has. R.C. Sproul writes this, when you kneel down before the likeness of a mortal person, pray to this likeness and invoke the power of that person to improve your life and to mediate your prayers to God, how does that differ in any way from worship? And he's right. In Luke 11, verses 27 and 28, we have Jesus' own commentary on this. Luke 11, 27 to 28, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said in the crowd, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Jesus, this was a perfect opportunity, wasn't it, to simply amen the woman's comment? Jesus says, on the contrary, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And again, that wasn't said by Jesus to demean Mary. That was said to keep the focus where it ought to be. Upon the truth of the word of God and the true gospel which gives life. Well, we need to close. What should we make of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Messiah? Well, beloved, who can question the truth that Mary occupies a very special place in the church and that she has a very unique role in the working of God and redemption? Mary is greeted, isn't she, by the angel Gabriel with honor. You can see it there in verse 28. He comes to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And that language gives us the sense, doesn't it, that Mary somehow was God's favorite. But that's not what's being said. Undoubtedly, Mary was a very godly young woman. She was humble. She was faithful. She knew a ton of scripture. But this is not speaking of the reason why God chose her to be the mother of Jesus. God didn't look down and say, well, Mary, you've merited this by your life. Though her life was exemplary. The language really is the language of grace. It is the language of undeserved kindness and blessing. The word favor, both here and down in verse 30, where you read it again, do not be afraid, Mary, for 
you have found favor with God. That is the language of grace. God graced her, not because she was worthy, but because God is gracious, like he did with your salvation. God blessed her. God gifted her. I don't believe for a moment that this is seeking to convey that somehow Mary's done something to merit this unique position. No, she is simply favored in the sense that she is blessed to serve the Lord and all of humanity, frankly, in this very, very unique singular role. Mary herself acknowledges that generations to come will call her blessed for this privilege, and we do count Mary blessed for this privilege. But she's blessed because God blessed her to bear the Son of God, not by any merit that is found in her. And friends, I do want to say this as good Protestants. Listen, (laughs) Mary should not be thought lowly of. It would be very easy for us to sort of despise Mary in our own hearts because of the false doctrines that have grown up around her. Don't make that mistake. Mary didn't do anything to deserve this. You with me? We ought to think highly of Mary. We ought to esteem her. She is a real example, and this is the point of the message two years ago. She's a real example of of faithfulness and somebody to model your life after, her humility and her, her knowledge of the word and her submission to God in all things, even in the most difficult of things. But we dare not elevate her to the level of co-redemptress, co-mediator, our intercessor, our high priestess. The Catholic Church has made an idol of Mary, and she has been elevated in Catholic doctrine to heights that make her a rival for the glory that belongs to Christ and Christ alone. And I tell you, Mary would not rob her son. And this is the main thing as we walk away from here today that, that, that we need to cling to. We need to see this very clearly. The Catholic doctrines that surround Mary utterly diminish the glory of Christ. And idolatry always does this. When we elevate some person or some object to a place of worship, that person or that object then competes for the honor and the devotion that belongs to God alone. And the Lord alone takes the place of singular devotion, doesn't he? You shall have no other gods before me. Think of how Mary's stance robs God of his glory. The moniker mother of God obscures the eternality of the Son of God. Her supposed sinlessness deprives Christ of his uniqueness as the matchless and sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mary's fiat threatens God's sovereignty by making God's will contingent upon the will and command of the creature. Her perpetual virginity attacks the truthfulness of Scripture, which testifies that she did, in fact, have other children. And it demeans the goodness of Christ's creation of human sexuality within the bonds of marriage. Her assumption into heaven and her role as co-mediator and co-redeemer defies Scripture and blasphemous 
blasphemously diminishes Christ's glory as the only mediator between God and man and the only redeemer of those who believe. Praying to Mary also takes away the glory of our great high priest who intercedes even now before God on our behalf, doesn't it? And you see what happens. In the end, Mary's glory shines brighter. It eclipses the glory of the eternal God who created her. You could put it this way, Jesus gets hidden behind her skirt. Beloved, we preach Christ and we preach him crucified, the only savior of men, and our boast is in Christ and it is in Christ alone. And we must keep the focal point of our adoration and our praise and our honor and our worship directed to the baby in the manger, not to his mother. And that baby, of course, is the exalted Christ who lives even now and is returning to judge the living and the dead. I want to take one quick read with you in Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. And I will pause a few times in here, and I just want you to fill in the blank. Will you, from our reading together? You just fill in the blank. We'll pick up in Luke 2 and verse 10. In the context of these shepherds, it says, The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is... Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising and saying, glory to in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry, and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds, but Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. In other words, Mary wandered right along with the rest. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as had been told them. Lord, you alone are worthy of worship. You alone have lived a sinless and righteous life. You alone were born of a woman, born under the law, that you might fulfill that law on our behalf so that you might become our sacrifice. Lord, so that we might be clothed in your righteousness, that we might have our sins forgiven. And we remember, Lord, that at your dying so that temple veil was torn in two that we might have free and unfettered access 
to the very throne of heaven that we might be able to draw boldly before your throne of grace with joy. Oh, Lord, we thank you for those who live as an example before us, for men like Moses, for women like Mary, and for many, many others that you have given to us that we might pattern our lives after them, for they lived in a way that was worthy of the gospel. But, Lord, far be it from us that we would ever exalt in anyone other than you. You are our God, our King, Lord of Lords, the only intercessor, the only mediator, the only redeemer. We glory in you and we give you all praise and glory now and forevermore. And all God's people said, amen.